Yep, Exodus 17, 1 to 16, which is on page 59 of the ESV Bibles. And if it's on your app, how quickly you would find it depends on how competent you are on your device, I guess. So Exodus 17, verses 1 to 16, starting with water from the rock. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Raphidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Marsha and Marabah, because of the quarrelling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is a Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one at one side and the other at the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do keep that um, bit of God's word open. Um, I'm going to uh, pray in a moment. And we'll be thinking particularly about that passage in Exodus as we continue our series heading towards the Ten Commandments. But I don't know what you made of the coronation yesterday. I don't know whether you watched it from beginning to end avidly or tuned in just to the little bits that you're particularly interested in. And I just wanted to say a few words before we come to this part of the Bible, just in terms of helping us, equipping us. Maybe uh, many of us have started to think how we might take opportunities um, on Tuesday morning or with family tomorrow. There was so much that was good in the coronation, wasn't there? So much Christian truth. Jesus Christ being held up as the example of rule, of humble service. 
that the justice and wisdom that is revealed in Jesus Christ being spoken of as the pattern that the king should follow. The whole service was based on the coronation of Old Testament kings, even uh, the coronation with Zadok the priest, which has led to a few humorous comments on our church WhatsApp group. But that was the, the pattern of the Old Testament right before us. Robes, jewels, wealth, riches, pomp and ceremony. It was very impressive, wasn't it? But I wonder if some of us, as we were listening to what the Archbishop of Canterbury said, what was said within the traditions that have been spoken of uh, since 1066 uh, and the Reformation, how some of the traditional words of the liturgy were slightly different to what was said and acted out in public. Now, as I said, there was so much that was good, but I think, sadly, not much was said about repentance and faith in Jesus Christ being needed to receive the Holy Spirit and enter into a relationship with God. It would have been easy to come away from the coronation thinking, well, as long as I'm a good person and I lead a good life, like people do in lots of other religions, I'll be fine. So I think, and this is just a, a suggestion, I think we want to be saying to people, well, there's was, was lots of good, lots of great things that were said, but it was a bit of a mixed bag when it came to Christian truth. And I think the main problem is actually addressed by our passage today, strangely enough. I mean, it was there. If you uh, look at the words of Psalm 98, which Andrew Lloyd Webber used as the basis for his work, there's much about the judgment of God, as well as the love of God and the righteousness of God. But the judgment of God and God's nature as judge was functionally denied. Because we live in a culture, don't we, which really doesn't want to hear about that. It's just so negative. So let's just pray that God would speak to us and correct our hearts and thinking. I'm very conscious how my heart needs to be changed on this issue. So let's just pray that God will speak to us through this part of his word, the Bible. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you so much that you are the rock who was struck by God in our place. Lord, may this be central to our understanding of who you are. Would repentance and faith be something which we delight to do and urge upon others because of your goodness to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And help us, Lord, to see through the spirit of our age, through the denial of judgment, to see how you've taken it for all who trust in you. And we ask this for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, as I've been suggesting, the spirit of our age, our culture, is that God is not a God of judgment. He, he can't be a God of judgment. That's so, so negative. God is a God of love, as if somehow that's something in opposition to him being a God of justice. We're, we're, we're encouraged to believe, aren't we, that God cannot be against anyone. He can't have enemies, can he? 
I think part of this problem that we saw portrayed before us yesterday was the idea that going to heaven is about being a good person, doing good deeds, serving our communities, all of which are really, really good things. But is being a good person, doing good deeds, enough for God? If we were to serve like King Charles has sworn to serve, would, would that mean that we merited heaven? Will we be okay? I was talking to a, a Muslim uh, last week at uh, an evening we had for international students, and he was very, very clear that this is what he understands Islam to teach. We have good deeds and bad deeds, and on Judgment Day, God will work out which outweighs the other. Is that how it works? Scales of judgment? If our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, we'll be fine. Is that right? Is that what Jesus taught? Is that what the Bible is all about? In the Bible, we see that there is a God who judges and also a God who takes the judgment that we deserve because he knows that that way of us being right with him is not going to get us through. It's not going to work. If that's what we're committed to or suspicious might be true and we were listening yesterday and thinking, oh, maybe that is true. We've been sold a lie. We've believed something that the Bible does not teach. Of course, the Bible is a, about justice, it's about good works, about righteousness, but as we will see, if we think that's how God does it, we've misunderstood Jesus and why he came and what he's done for us. You see, part of it is and I'm just trying to sort of clear away some of the attitudes that we'll all be affected by from yesterday, but also from our culture. We shrink God down, whereas in fact he is infinite. He is eternal. His goodness is utter perfection. He cannot even bear to look on evil. There's no atom of darkness in him. He is pure light. He cannot be tempted by evil. And he's building a perfect world where people must be perfect to be welcomed in. See, our good deeds cannot blot out our bad deeds. There isn't a moral credit system. God as perfect demands perfection. Two points that we'll learn this morning from this passage. God will judge grumbling that tests him, so trust in his rock. And God does judge his enemies, so follow Joshua to victory. Firstly, God will judge grumbling that tests him, so trust in his rock. Quick recap to get our bearings, 500 years or so before these events, God promised to Abraham that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham did lots of good works? No. Well, he did later, potentially. Although if you see Abraham's life, he sort of did and he didn't. No. Why was Abraham treated as God's friend? Because he believed God's promise and it was credited to him as perfection, righteousness. And then he started to live out that righteousness in the rest of his life. But it began with him trusting 
in God's provision, in God's promise. And then the Israelites, several hundred years later, the descendants of Israel, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, had grown to about two million, and, and as, God, as God had promised, they'd been rescued from Egypt through the judgment of God on Egypt. God is a fearsome judge. And the way that God judged Egypt symbolically for some of the plagues was by Moses raising his staff or his hand. Now, let me just show you this. So turn back, keep a finger in chapter 17. I was trying to communicate this in the kids' talk, but if you talk about this as families later on, it would be, be good to have this picture in your mind. So chapter 7, verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, sometimes it was Moses, sometimes it was Aaron, but the key thing was that it was the staff or the hand, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. This is no algal bloom. This is supernatural. And then chapter 14, verse 16. So you've got all the plagues and you've got the staff and the hand of Moses. And then you have a similar use of language in chapter 14, verse 16. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And then later on, verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Of course, Prince of Egypt makes it more palatable, but actually what is recorded by Moses and others was they saw all the dead bodies on the shoreline. And as we saw last week, despite this supernatural intervention of God through the staff of Moses, the hand of Moses bringing judgment on their enemies, they were grumbling. First they grumbled that they didn't have water, that was only three days in, and then they were grumbling about the food and yet God provided graciously daily supernatural provision which prefigured the bread from heaven, the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. You know, every morning they, they woke up and, and there was this stuff. They didn't know what it was, so they called it manna, and it was like frost, so it was there for a while. But then if they didn't collect it, it would disappear and it was gone like frost. But it wasn't frost because it fed two million people for 40 years, and it appeared every day. But if they collected a, a certain amount, and that was more than they needed, it shrank. And if they didn't collect enough, when they got home with it, it kind of grew. And then if they tried to keep it for the next day, it rotted, unless it was the evening before the Sabbath, in which case it kept. Is that normal to you? This is supernatural. And they see it day in, day out. But then we get to chapter 17, verse 1, and what do we read? 
They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? It's clear that they're not just grumbling against Moses, they're grumbling against the Lord. But the people, verse 3, thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? It wasn't Moses, was it? It was the Creator. They had seen miracles upon miracles. They were experiencing a miracle on a daily basis. And Moses correctly identifies that they are testing the Lord. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And Moses cries out to the Lord, what, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, for those of you who are thinking, uh, life of Brian, stone him in the background. This is not funny. This is deadly serious. Oh, and there is some humor to that kind of refrain, isn't there? But this is the moment when the Israelites turned away from God's supernatural provision that elsewhere in the Bible is described as Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bread from heaven. Jesus is the rock, as we will see. And so keep a finger here and turn with me to Psalm 95. We say this fairly regularly. So it should be familiar to us. Psalm 95, verse 7. Uh, and this is obviously under the kings of Israel, and it's a psalm to be sung in the tabernacle or temple, and they're looking back, the psalmist is looking back to this time, and he says, verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Marsai in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Verse 11, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. They would never make it to the promised land. Their bodies would be strewn in the desert. Unless we think, well, that was for them back then when God is some sort of cruel tyrant. We know he's not really into judgment anymore. You know, now he's the loving God of the New Testament. He's always accepting us, whatever we do. No. Hebrews chapter 3. Do we hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us today? People make lots of claims about what the Holy Spirit says, but the writer to the Hebrews says, quoting from Psalm 95, chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says to you and to me today, he quotes Psalm 95 that we've just read, and then concludes, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, in other words, before we reach heaven, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for you have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm 
to the end. Then he quotes Psalm 95 again. He quotes Psalm 95 again in chapter 4. Let us, chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. They didn't make it. Back to chapter 17. I've been really challenged preparing for this. I don't know how anybody can prepare to preach the Bible and not find their lives being challenged because what this is saying is that what began as just sort of quite reasonable grumbling, you know, they didn't have food and they didn't have water, ended up being a testing of the Lord which barred them from the promised land. Don't worry, we believe here that once saved, always saved. The Lord begins a work in us, he will complete it. But those who make it to heaven heed the warnings. It's a bit like a gateway drug, grumbling. I, I, don't, I, don't, know, uh, I don't know if this is a thing still. I don't know if it's true. Those in, we'll, we'll know more whether gateway drugs are real or whether it's just you know, right-wing scaremongering. So there's a number of people sh uh, shaking their heads. We, we all know what gateway drug is. You know, it's something that doesn't seem to be too harmful, like marijuana, that leads on to something that's a little bit more harmful, like heroin. The idea is that something that isn't so bad as it could be can lead on to something which is deadly. Grumbling is like that. The Israelites began to grumble in the desert, but before you know it, in only a matter of months, they are testing God, and their bodies litter the desert. They all started, not all made it. Do you grumble? <laughs> Do I grumble? Asked Mim. Yes, a lot. What's the difference between the grumbling that's going on at the beginning of chapter 16 and what's happened by chapter 17? Well, I think it probably goes something like this. God, I, I don't understand why I am thirsting in the desert. I don't understand why I've got nothing to eat, God. Come, please, would you provide? Grumble, 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 grumble. Oh, amazing provision. But the grumbling continues. God, I don't understand why you're permitting this in my life, have permitted this in my life. I don't know why I've got this spouse or this job or... This health condition. It can be a faith-filled grumbling, can't it? Or complaint. The Bible is quite happy to say complaining to God with faith and submission is, is right. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? But grumbling can be like a gateway drug. God, have you rescued me to make me miserable in this Christian life? Have you rescued me from slavery only to give me something deadly and hopeless to cope with? And what starts as grumbling can morph into testing God. Unless you do this for me, God, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. 
Rather than us serving God, we demand that God serve us. Unless you heal me, God, unless you provide this for me, God, unless you do that in my job or in my family, unless you answer this prayer, you're not worth believing in. And that attitude of soul cannot coexist with trust of God, can it? You can't trust God and test God at the same time. They're polar opposites. They can't coexist in the same soul. And that is why grumbling can be so deadly. It can morph into testing God and unbelief to the point of self-destruction. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't tend to see grumbling that seriously, do you? I sort of think, you know, it's fine. It's fine just to grumble a little bit. It's not that bad. It's a bit like saying, oh, I'll just, I'll just light up a spliff. That's fine. It's not that bad. No, we need to... I, I've been doing some gardening of late. Um, it's why I cut my hand. It's not that I've sort of razored my hand. It's just I've been sawing some stuff and slipped. But, you know, when you've got your weeds and they're starting to grow up, particularly this time of year, you don't sort of think, oh, I'll just leave it for a little bit. I'll just leave it. There'll still be carrots in, you know, six months' time, but I'll just leave the weeds. No, you pick the weeds out. You get rid of them. It's very satisfying. Grumbling's like that. If we let grumbling take root, if we don't root it out, it can dominate us and overwhelm us and twist our perception of who God is. And as we know, people we love, people we have known in the past, people we, I think of people I knew at university are no longer professing faith in Christ, even our own children maybe. Grumbling needs to be rooted out. We need to keep each other accountable, don't we? A lot of the grumbling that goes around in, in church life happens behind the scenes, doesn't it? In marriages, in families. Let's root it out. God's will for us in Christ Jesus is that we're prayerful and thankful. But thankfully, there is a solution. Even if we know that we're grumbling and even testing God because of what God's response is. Look with me at verse 5. So Moses, uh, Moses cries to the Lord, what shall we do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, walk on ahead, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Struck the Nile. Judgment is coming. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, the mountain of Sinai, and you shall strike the rock. The picture is, there's the rock. God is standing before the rock. Moses on the other side with the elders. This is a court scene, according to Tim Chester, who, whose uh, commentary I'm following at this point. 
He puts forth the staff, the staff. Judgment comes towards the rock. The rock takes it and splits, and out comes provision for the people. And what Paul says is, Christ is that rock. Christ was struck to provide for the grumbling people of God. Even in our testing of him, if we trust in Jesus Christ, out comes the satisfying water that sates our thirst, the outpoured Holy Spirit to enable us to keep trusting in God. So if, like me, you know that you're grumbling in your heart for, for however long, and you know that that's undermining your trust in God, come back to God's way of renewing your trust in him. Jesus was put on trial and found guilty before an, another group of elders. He was struck not by a staff, but by the rods and fists of the soldiers for people like you and me. They struck him not with a staff, but with floggings, a whip that had bits of bone and metal in it, so that with every blow it dug into his flesh, and then as it was yanked back, it ripped bits of muscle and sinew off his back down to the bone, so he couldn't carry his own cross. And finally he was struck by Almighty God with the infinite darkness and judgment and hell that you and I deserve so that we can may be made once enemies at peace with God, refreshed by the water of the Holy Spirit, pouring out of the struck rock so that we can trust in God. Jesus was struck for people like you and me so that we needn't have our Masa or our Meribah. Even at that moment, isn't this gracious of God? Even at that moment when they were testing him, he provided for a way for them to trust him. Let's stop testing God. Let's trust him instead. But you see, they didn't. And they were judged. So maybe some of us this morning need to be warned that if we continue in our hearts to test God, don't think he will refrain from judging us. God will judge grumbling that tests him. So trust in his rock today, now. And then secondly, and far more briefly, God will judge the enemies of his people so follow Joshua to victory. Now, there's much more that could be said on this, and um, I think some of the questions that may arise from this part of God's word we'll, we'll deal with on Wednesday. Uh, why is it that God has enemy to specific people, Canaanites? I mean, I don't know the last time you met an Amalekite. Anybody met an Amalekite? And we've met Syrians. Persians, Greeks, Romans, Amalekites, all around all at the same kind of time. In the second half of chapter 17, the, the theme of grumbling is gone, but the theme of judgment continues because it's all about Moses and the staff of God. 
and him raising his hands in enmity to the enemies of God's people. So verse 17, verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites of Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of your men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. The judgment of God is coming against the Amalekites through the staff of God, the symbol of his judgment. And he needs to keep this symbol of judgment going. And so Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steadily until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. What is the significance of this? Verse 15, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Why? What have they done wrong? Well, quite a bit, actually. If you go into it, they're fellow Canaanites with all the other Canaanites, so they're into child sacrifice and incest and bestiality and just about every wickedness you can conceive of. But the Lord has been patient with them. He's already given them 400 years to repent. He's going to give them another 350 years to repent. And meanwhile, they are attacking and enslaving the stragglers amongst the Israelites. But here we hear, verse 16, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And it finally comes to a head under the reign of King Saul. But why? Why is God like this towards the Amalekites? Well, remember what he had promised to Abraham. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. See, God relates to people because of how they treat his people, his son. Israel is known as God's son later on. And then Jesus tells a parable that he will judge people according to how they treat him. The sheep and the goats. God is a judge. God has enemies. He longs for people to become part of his people, the people whom he's promised to bless. But if people continue in hardened, sinful response to his people, there will come a time when he will destroy them. Now, of course, this doesn't legitimize holy war for Christians. There's no longer any holy land, no holy city, no holy temple. And in brief, what is earthly and geographic in the Old Testament is spiritual and global in the new. So Jesus spoke of the day he would judge. And he would throw Satan and all his demons and all those who side with him into the second death, the, the lake of burning sulfur. And in Revelation, we see Jesus leading the armies of heaven who are following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and blood will be spattered everywhere. And we object, how does this fit with the God of love, which 
clearly God is. Love, does, love doesn't stand idly by when it sees the object, the apple of his eye, his people attacked. If our nation and its values are attacked by a cruel tyrant, we would do all in our power to resist, to fight, to be at war as in Ukraine. If our family were attacked and our children kidnapped by some abuser, we would in in fury seek to set them free and destroy them. God is not less committed. I know, I slightly, over, I, I slightly overstated it. I, don't, I hope we wouldn't go out and try and kill people. But what was physical in the Old Testament is now spiritual, primarily in the New. And the language that is used by Jesus in the New Testament and by his apostles is this kind of language. So we have to be very careful before we say that God loves all people. He loves his people because he loves his son and he wants all people to repent and join his people by trusting in his son. That's the only way people are part of God's people is by trusting in the rock, by following Joshua to the great victory against the enemies of God's people, like Satan and his demons and, as Jesus said, all the children of the devil. We need to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. We need to be transferred from following Satan to following Joshua, trusting in Joshua. So let's be those who trust in the rock that was struck for us. Let us, you and me, follow Joshua, who leads us. Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is just the Greek name, Greek version of Joshua. He leads us into victory against all that is opposed to God. And if we are those who trust in the rock and follow G Joshua, follow Jesus, then we can be confident of victory over sin and death and the devil and the, over all who prefer them to God. We've been provided for. We've been given all that we need. We will be victors. So we've no reason to grumble. No reason to grumble. No reason to grumble. Let's pray. Lord, we're sorry that we do grumble because we lose sight just how much you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you were struck so that we need not be. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you, through your suffering and death, have won the victory that we can be a part of. Lord, if there's anyone here who's not yet a part of that victory, who's not trusting in Jesus as their rock, would you work in them to bring them to faith in Jesus, the victory of Jesus, the peace of Jesus. And for those of us who do know him, Oh, Lord, save us from our grumbling.